You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So today we're taking another step in our set of sermons called Parable. And uh, for this whole fall, really all the way through the end of the year, this is where we're going to be hanging as a church family in the stories of Jesus. And we're asking God to take these stories of Jesus and through these stories to shape us more and more and more into the image of Jesus. And so today we're going to think this short parable found in Luke chapter 7. We're going to think this parable uh, called the parable of the two debtors. We're going to think this parable through. And so, uh, let me introduce uh, the parable uh, like this. Um, this parable is, is um, like most parables, um, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's connected to a place. Uh, the, the story has a scene to it. It doesn't just appear in a vacuum. It, it has a setting and a scene that we find uh, this parable within. And that scene is at the house of our man, Simon. Now, this text uh, describes Simon as a Pharisee, and like all Pharisees, Simon was religious. He was rule-following. He was um, one of those um, externally very obedient sort of people. That, that's Simon. And, you know, when, when we read the Bible back now, a couple of thousand years later, um, we oftentimes cast the Pharisees in a very negative light. It's really easy if you read the New Testament to get a sense of, uh, man, those guys are the ones who are opposing Jesus and they're not on team Jesus, uh, right? So it's easy for us to think that, I'm um, reading the New Testament now. But if you would have found yourself in the first century living as a Jewish person, um, you would have been looking at Simon and, and these Pharisees, and you would have said great things about them. Uh, if, you were, if somebody would ask you, tell, tell me about Simon. Do you know Simon? Tell me about him. You would have said, man, that guy is a solid guy. He's got a lot of integrity. Uh, he, he's a good person. He is just a really decent human being. That, that would be Simon. Um, he's the sort of person that you would want your kids to kind of grow up like, uh, to be like, more like Simon. And Jesus is over at Simon's house, and Jesus is in, uh, eating dinner with Simon and a group of, of Simon's friends. And, and that's when dinner is disrupted. A lady uh, described in this text as a sinner, which likely means a prostitute, a, a, a lady, a, a sinner, busts through the door, and gosh, it's just an amazing scene, isn't it? Can you just put yourself into the, the dinner setting? You're around the table with Jesus, with Simon. You're one of the friends there, and, and dinner is disrupted, and this lady kneels behind Jesus, and just with these joy-filled tears streaming down from her face, falling onto the feet of Jesus. And then she does something that would have been so scandalous to everyone watching this. She unties her hair and begins to wash the feet of Jesus with her own tears. Then she takes this ointment, Probably her uh, most costly possession, likely her life's savings. And she begins to, to rub this ointment into the tear-washed feet of Jesus. And as she's doing all of that, she just cannot stop kissing Jesus' feet. It's this amazing, it's this amazing scene. Can, can you imagine how awkward dinner just became? I mean, that, that is an awkward moment, isn't it? She doesn't care. It's just a moment of beautiful sort of self-forgetfulness. Now, now, let's just ask ourselves the question. What are we witnessing in this scene? 
As we watch this lady do these things, what are we seeing here? And this would be my answer to that. We are seeing a shocking moment of unrestrained, nothing held back. Here's my all, Jesus. We're seeing a moment of that unrestrained love of Jesus. That's what we're witnessing in this story. Uh, or you could think about it this way. Um, Matthew 22, in that text, Jesus is asked a question. And the question went something like this. Jesus, uh, there's a lot of laws. There's like 613 of them in the Old Testament. We need some help, Jesus. What, what is the greatest of all the laws? Like, Jesus, what is it that you really, really want from us? And Jesus responds in Matthew 22 and says this. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. I, it, it's uh, those that repeated phrases there for emphasis. With, with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. And he says, with all of those things, with everything that you are. And he goes on in verse 38. This is the first and greatest commandment. Have you ever just asked yourself, what is it that the Lord wants from me? I just have to periodically wake up and just ask that question because I don't know if you're like me, but on any particular day, a fog can roll into my life and on any particular day, it can feel really hard to find what is the purpose of this day? Like, God, what, what is it that you want from me on this particular day? Well, in Matthew 22, Jesus gives us a true north. Anytime you ever wonder that, anytime you wake up in a fog and are just looking to find the purpose of a day, what, what is it that you want today from me, Jesus? This is your true north. This is your place to start. It's Jesus saying here in Matthew 22, I want you to love me unrestrained, nothing held back. Jesus, here's my, oh, I want you to love me like that. that. That's our true north every single day. Now, you might ask the question, well, what does a love of Jesus like that look like? And there's a lot we could say to that, but here is what this story is trying to show us. It looks a lot like this lady in this story. It looks a lot like her. I mean, just consider her tears, they're tears of love. This was a woman who'd been rescued from the hell of her sin by Jesus. She'd been, she'd been rescued by Jesus. And she, and she knew that, listen, you could pick any one of the Ten Commandments. You just kind of put your, your finger over it and you just stop randomly at a, at a commandment. She, she knew she had broken it. She knew that she was guilty of her sin. And Jesus rescued her from her guilt. The, the guilt of her sin had been lifted. The shame of her sin had been removed. Jesus had brought her into a whole new world, and that new world was called grace. And, and she's breathing the air of this new world. And breathing that new air of grace, her heart just explodes with joy and thankfulness toward Jesus. It's this picture of unrestrained love. Look at her kisses. It's this picture of humble love. She's bowing before Jesus. There's your humility. Bowing before him. And she just, she can't stop kissing his feet. It's this picture of, of unrestrained, nothing held back love. She is just enthralled by the person of Jesus. She is, in, in our common kind of vernacular here, she is enjoying Jesus in this passage, enthralled in awe at the person of Jesus. Look at her ointment. She gives to Jesus what is likely her most, most valuable possession. 
She is taking what is likely her life's savings, and she is saying, Jesus, this is going on your feet. Jesus, I am giving you everything that I have. It's this picture, a picture of nothing held back. It's, it's that sort of love. This woman is a, is a picture of genuine love of Jesus. The unrestrained, nothing held back. Jesus, here's my all. She is putting Matthew 22 in story form for us so we can see it in action, in a, in a, in a life. Now, let me just pause here before we move on and I want to express something just really clearly to you. When I think about you, a part of our church family, and if somebody were to ask me, what is my desire for you? What, what is, how would I articulate one of my deepest hopes for you, for us as a church family? This is what I would say. I want you, like this woman, to love, genuinely love Jesus. Unrestrained, nothing held back. Jesus, this is everything I have. It is yours. I want you to genuinely love Jesus with everything you have, with everything that you are. And this text is asking us to grapple through, does that describe me? Is there a genuine love of Jesus that is visible to others in my life? Do, do I look like this, this lady here? Or has my heart grown cold and callous to Jesus? Have I developed a posture over time of just sort of being standoffish toward Jesus, stiff-arming Jesus, just sort of keeping him over here? He, he's welcome in a lot of my life, but there's areas that he's not going to be welcome in. So Jesus, you stay there. Does this picture of love that we're seeing here, does it, does it describe you? The, the picture we're seeing in this precious lady of wholehearted love of Jesus, does it describe you? If, if you're going to locate yourself in the story, can you locate yourself with her in her shoes? Does that describe you? Now, let's turn to the tension in this text. What makes this story so shocking to everyone in and around the story. But what makes it so shocking is Jesus loves her love. And nobody can believe that. She is loving Jesus, and Jesus loves being loved by her. Je Jesus loves her love. Now, if you would have pulled everyone else at the table that night, everyone else reclining with, with, with Jesus, if you'd have pulled everyone else and said, okay, let's, let's take um, Simon and let's take this sinner, who is the picture of love? Wh whose love is Jesus really going to love? Everybody else in this story would have said, well, well, that's obvious. Simon is the picture of love. He, he's the one who invited Jesus over, for crying out loud. He's the one that's prepared the food for Jesus. He's the one that can quote all the Bible verses. He's the one with the pristine past. He, he's the one that goes to church. He's the one that serves. He's the one that gives. I mean, Simon is the one that's doing it. Everyone else in this story thinks Simon is the one whose love Jesus loves. But Jesus clarifies. Look at verses 44 through 46. He says, do you see this woman, Simon? Do you see her? Jesus says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. 
But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head, uh, you did not anoint my head with, with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So now what is Jesus saying here? He's looking at Simon and saying, Simon, behind your pristine morality is your heart. And when I'm looking down into your heart, Simon, there, there is no awe, there is no desire, there are no affections. But Simon, look at her tears. Simon, look, look at her kisses. Look at the oil on my feet. And behind all of that, look at her heart, Simon. It is exploding with a deep, durable love of me. Simon, that's what I love. I love her love. And Simon, I want you to love me like that. I want to pull you into that sort of love. Now, again, before we move on, I want you to make sure you place yourself in the story. Does your love look more like Simon's or more like this sinner? More like this precious woman in this text? I just want you to think honestly about that. Are there calluses and coldness in your heart? Or is there a warmness toward Jesus, an open-heartedness toward Jesus, unrestrained, nothing held back? Jesus, here's my all sort of love. Now, here's what Jesus does with the tension in this text. He takes the tension and turns it. He takes the tension and, and uses it to teach from. He wants to show Simon. He wants to, to, to say some things to Simon. And in a lot of ways, here's the question that Jesus is trying to answer in this parable and in this story. He's trying to show us what changes a cold, calloused heart into a warm, vibrant heart, exploding with unrestrained, nothing held back love of him. That's what he's trying to do in this text. He's trying to show us what, what changes a human heart like that. But what has to happen in a human heart for this sort of unrestrained love to explode out of it? And if you're saying today, you know what, I look more like Simon in my love. He would be a better descriptor of how I'm relating to Jesus than this woman would. Then if that's you and you're saying, but I want to I love Jesus like that. I want to love Jesus like this lady, unrestrained, nothing held back. Here is my all. If you're saying that today, then Jesus has written this parable for you. This story exists in the Bible for you. So pick it up in verse 39. In verse 39, we read, Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, and the this is this lady creating this awkward moment with Jesus. That's what he's seen. And he said to himself, if this man, talking about Jesus, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Simon looks at Jesus who loves her love. He looks at Jesus and with utter, just with utter contempt, He's looking at Jesus, and then this lady, and here's what he's thinking. This lady is so bad that if Jesus were a real prophet from God, Jesus would not let this lady in, her, in his presence. That's what he's feeling deep down. This, this is what he's sensing, and this is what he's, this is what he's saying here. And, and so Jesus says, Simon, I have a story for you. Now, anytime Jesus says that to you, get ready, right? 
a spiritual grenade is about to be dropped right in your lap. Um, Simon, I have a story for you. And then he tells the story in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them, Simon, will love him more? Simon, will the one who had the smaller debt love him more or the one who had the larger debt canceled, will he love him more? Verse 43, and Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Jesus said to Simon, you have judged rightly. And then in verse 47, Jesus, in a lot of ways, is just diagnosing the difference between Simon in his heart and this sinner in her heart. And this is in a lot of ways, verse 47, the, the mic drop moment in this passage. that Jesus says in verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, and she knows they're many, her sins are forgiven. And he's saying four. And because her sins are forgiven and she sees how big her debt was, she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus is looking at Simon and saying, what, what creates such deep affection and love in this lady's heart for me is that she sees the depth of her sin. She sees how dark sin in, is in her, how deep it goes in her. And after she sees that, she has now experienced my amazing grace that tracks down all of our sin, that is bigger than all of our sin, that covers and cancels all of our sin. That's why her heart is exploding with love of me, Simon, and yours is not. Or we could say it this way. In this text, Jesus is revealing what I would just call like the key to the Christian life. And I'm saying that without like fear of preacherly hyperbole. I think it is foundational if you're going to walk with God in a way that pleases God. He is showing us what is the key to the Christian life. And here's the way we might say it. Here's the key to the Christian life. It is seeing our sinfulness. That's on one side. And seeing God's faithfulness, that's on the other side. That is a, the key to the Christian life. This is, this is what Jesus is trying to show us. This is, this is why she's loving me with a heart that is just exploding with affection and joy. She is seeing her sinfulness and she is seeing, Jesus is saying, my faithfulness. Now that. Us seeing our sinfulness and and Jesus' faithfulness, that is the key that unlocks the door into a unrestrained, nothing held back, all-out love of Jesus. That's the key. Now, that key is going to have words written on both sides. Here's side one. Let's just take a second to linger over this. Here is side one, seeing our sinfulness. Written on one side of that key are those words. You have to see your sinfulness. Now, let's think about this parable for a moment. There are three pieces to the parable. One is the lender, and the lender is representing God in the parable. And there are two debtors, uh, one with a large debt, 500 denarii, and one with a small debt, um, 50 denarii. Uh, The large debt is representing this woman, the sinner in the parable. Uh, The small debt is representing Simon, the Pharisee, the moral guy, the upstanding guy, the the, the good guy in, in this story. And the debt... And then there's the debt. That, that's the third piece to the parable. And like it so often does in the scriptures, uh, that debt is representing our sin. 
So, so debt equals our sin. Uh, just to see how that's represented in the Bible, think of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, when Jesus says, let me teach you how to pray. And then he says, here's one way to pray. Uh, pray this, God, forgive us of our debts. Uh, you, you could translate that, forgive us of our sins. Uh, debt in the scriptures is so often used to, to give imagery for what sin looks like and is in our life. Now, here is, uh, just taking the totality of the scripture, uh, when we come to this passage, here's what we would say from the totality of scripture. Uh, the scriptures are so clear in showing us that we all have an incalculable debt before God. We have incalculable sin before God. This is Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And not just once, not just twice, but, but billions of times. There's not a day that goes by where, where something in our life is not shot through with sin. So uh, let's just think about sin for a moment. God made us to love and honor and obey him in word, thought, and deed. Okay, God made us like that to, to do that. But every time we fall short to do that perfectly, uh, to, to love and honor and obey God perfectly, every time we fail to do that, we, we sin. It's what the Bible calls sin. It's, it's missing the mark. It's, it's not living in a way that, that God would design us and make us to live. And every time we sin, the depth of our debt, our sin debt toward God grows. So let's just tease that out for a moment. Sin happens when we think, say, do, or believe something we shouldn't. Just think about all the times we've done that, right? And sin also happens when we think, say, do, and believe something, or we don't think, uh, say, do, and believe something that we should. So it's not just doing what we shouldn't, it's also not doing what we should. Uh, those classically have been understood as sins of commission, things we actively do in sins of omission. So think of sins of commission. Every time that, that you've gotten drunk, stole, digested pornography, worshiped at the altar of, of idols, uh, looking at, at, at a job or a spouse or a bottle or food or career or money and possessions to give you what only God can. Every time we do that, every time we've gossiped, every time we've exploded in anger, every time our words have cut someone unnecessarily, every time we have been cruel and critical, the debt before God grows. Think of the sins of omission. Every time that we've not done the things that we should, every time we've refused to speak that affirming and kind word into that person's life. Every time that we have failed to proactively love our spouse, our kids, our neighbors, our friends, our church family. Every time that we have failed to be kind and given to those in need, the debt just grows and grows and grows, accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. And can you just imagine if we took a microscope and looked at all of your days on this earth, what the sin debt would look like? I mean, seriously, can you imagine? I don't know that there's enough zeros to describe what mine would be. If, if we looked at every moment, every day, and we just walk through every one of those moments, the debt would be incalculable. Now, let me clear up one thing that this text on the surface can be a little bit confusing. In saying one has a $50 denarii debt and one has a 500 denarii debt, Jesus isn't saying, um, and remember who each is representing. Simon is representing the smaller debt. This lady is representing the, the bigger debt. And, and using that sort of imagery, Jesus isn't saying, um, Simon, you know, you're really a good guy. And, and you, really, you just need a little bit of forgiving. 
That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not looking at the lady and saying, her debt of sin is so big, we're going to have to bust out the credit card on her. That, that's not the point of the text. In using the, the, the 5,500 imagery, Jesus is showing the difference between Simon and this woman. And Jesus isn't saying that she needs grace more than Simon needs grace. That's not the point of the story. Rather, he's saying she actually knows that she needs grace. Do you see the difference it, it, Jesus isn't saying one of you need a little more grace than the other. The point Jesus is making is one of you knows that you need grace and the other one doesn't. Simon, you just can't see your need for grace. She, she sees it. And her heart now is exploding inside of her toward me. But, but Simon, you can't see it. Or we could say it this way. Both have an incalculable debt of sin to God. But here's the difference between the two. She knows that's true. Simon doesn't. Poor Simon in this text, right? Simon, when he's looking at his incalculable debt of sin, all he can see are a few pennies. That's the difference. They're both shot through with sin, but only one knows it. Only one feels it. Only one sees it. This precious lady's Eyes have been opened to see the darkness in our heart, how deep her sin goes. That's the difference. This, this is where it starts. And Jesus is looking at Simon and saying, Simon, do you know why her heart has changed and yours hasn't? Do you know why she's exploding with affection for me and yours isn't? Do you know why? It's because, Simon, deep down, you really think you're a pretty good guy who doesn't need a lot of saving. That, that's the reason. While this lady knows she's not a good lady and is in desperate need of saving. That's the difference, Simon. And I wonder if, if this is true of you. Do, do you know the size of your sin debt? Are you seeing with eyes wide open your sinfulness? It, here is a question that I think is a great, like... Um, kind of litmus test for your spiritual health. So I think you just ought to ask this periodically and just see what answer kind of bubbles up from your heart. Just uh, imagine me asking you. Actually, you're not going to imagine. I'm going to do it right now. So just here's the moment of the question. Who's the biggest sinner that you know? How, how would you answer that? Who's the biggest sinner that you know? It's hard for me to describe how important your answer to that question is. What's your gut reaction to that question? See, when we're blind to our sin and wide awake to the sin of others, we're going to answer in some ways like Simon here. We're going to say, that sinner, that, that's the biggest sinner I know. That, that, she's right over there. That, that, that's him. That, that's her. But when we're wide awake to our own sinfulness, the darkness in us, the depth of sin in our heart, listen, even after Jesus saves us, the, the depth of sin in our heart, we'll begin to honestly answer that question in a different way. We'll begin to honestly be able to say, I am the worst sinner I know because I know the depth and the darkness and disgust of my own sin the best. I think it's one of the best litmus tests for your spiritual health. Can we, like Paul, honestly say, I am the chief of sinners? Like when I'm surveying the land of sinners, I am at the top of my list. I'm the chief of sinners. Have you ever just prayed and 
ask God to open your eyes to all of your sin? That's a scary prayer, isn't it? I would rather not know about a lot of it, right? But, but this is one of the, the, the sort of key tests of our spiritual health. How wide awake are we to our own sinfulness? This is one of the keys to the Christian life. Side one, seeing our sinfulness. This is the side of the key that sobers us. But there's another side. On side two of the key, we, write, or we see these words written. Side one, seeing our sinfulness. Side two, we have to see God's faithfulness. Side one, sobers us. Side two, satisfies us. It's not just seeing our sinfulness. It can't stop. There. It starts there, but it can't stop there. It's not just seeing our sinfulness. It's also seeing God's faithfulness. It's not just seeing our debt. It's also seeing the four words that you find in verse 42. Look at verse 42. It's, it's the greatest four words of this text. The moneylender, it says, he canceled. He is, is God. That's representing God. He, the moneylender, canceled the debt. He canceled the debt. Now, consider that imagery of debt again. If someone uh, came up to you and borrowed $1,000, and on the day of repayment, uh, they came to you and said, I don't know how to say this, but I've lost everything, and I can't, I don't have a cent to my name. There's no way I can repay you. I, I, I don't have anything to pay you with. I, I can't pay you back. What happens in that moment? If you're going to forgive their debt, what happens? Uh, contrary to, to what many people in our culture believe, when you borrow money but don't repay it, that money doesn't, that debt just doesn't magically disappear, right? That's not the way debt works. It, it doesn't just magically disappear. Debt can't just disappear. It can only be transferred. If you can't pay a debt... The, the debt can't just magically disappear and go away. That's not how debt works. Debt has to be transferred. And friends, isn't that the story of the gospel? That, that your debt has been transferred. We have this incalculable debt before God. You see this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, where Paul says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, dead, it doesn't say we're just bad people. No, it says we're spiritually dead people, unresponsive to God. It's not just that we were walking around with the limp. No, it's we had no spiritual life in us. We're dead. And in our deadness toward God, we can't do anything but sin against God, accruing this insurmountable, unpayable debt, this debt that could only be paid by our death and an eternity of hell. That's the sobering reality of our debt. So this text says, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Now, how did he forgive our trespasses? Did it just magically disappear? No, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. On the cross, our entire record of debt, that insurmountable debt, that, that debt that you could never pay back, that debt that, that your good deeds could never repay, that endless debt, that debt that we are still accruing right now in our sin, that, that debt that, that keeps us from God eternally damning us before God forever, 
that debt didn't just mysteriously disappear. It was transferred to Jesus. It was transferred to Jesus. Your entire record of debt crushing him on the cross. Now, that's something we can celebrate, isn't it? I mean, that, that's something that, that could like perk our heart up, open our eyes to the amazing nature of grace. This is why we sing together, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul, amen? This is why we sing songs like this, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. That's the faithfulness of our God. Now, why do we need both sides of this key, our sinfulness and God's faithfulness? Well, here's the reason. You'll never really see and celebrate God's amazing grace until you really see and consider your sin. They're linked together. Until you see your utter poverty before God, you'll never be amazed at God's provision in Jesus. The two are linked together. Or as the old Puritan pastor Thomas Watson said it, he said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That's what Jesus is trying to show us here. Until your sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And when, when sin becomes bitter and Christ becomes sweet, when, when our forgiveness is actually felt for what it is deep down in our heart, our heart explodes with the love of Jesus. Okay, now here's how I want to end. I want to end by trying to apply this. And I, I, to apply it, I want to create three broad categories and I just want to give you time to reflect about your own life for a moment and, and to see and consider what, which of these categories describes me right now. Which of these categories would reflect where I am, where my heart is? Here are the three categories. You're gonna, every one of us in the room is going to find ourselves in one of these three camps. Here's category number one. <clears throat> We, we might be in the category of people that right now you just don't see your sin. Much like Simon. We just, we just when we look at ourselves, we, just, we think we're a pretty good guy that doesn't really need a lot of saving, right? We just don't see our sin. Here's the second category. Are people who, they, they see their sin, but the problem is that they only see their sin. So, so maybe that's you. You're only seeing your sin one side of the key. Or category three, you're seeing both your sin and God's faithfulness, God's amazing grace. You're seeing both of those two things. Now, my prayer today is, if we're in category one or two, that this would be a day where God moves us into category three, where our heart begins to explode with love of Jesus. That's the prayer. That's the hope. This is why this text is in the Bible, to do that work in your heart and in my heart. Now, let me just give you some grids to think about this through. How do you know what category you're in? Well, let me give you four or five grids here. Here's the first one. When we don't see our sin, here's what it does to us. Here's the play out in our life. Like Simon in this text, we become harsh and judgmental toward other people. 
On the other hand, when we only see our sin, we become harsh and judgmental with ourselves. But when we see both our sin and God's faithfulness, we are gracious toward everyone. I mean, it's just a graciousness overflows out of our heart. Um, consider this imagery. Imagine you and a friend were about to rob a bank. Just imagine that moment. It is bank robbing day. It's the day you're going to do it. You've decided you're, you're going to do it. And, and on the way to rob the bank, you decide, you know what? We're going to drop in um, at a friend's house and say hello on our way to robbing the bank. We've got a little bit of a conversation we want to have with this friend, so we're going to stop there on the way to, to robbing the bank. And when you get to your other friend's house, uh, the other friend looks at you and hears the story of you saying, we're about to go rob a bank. And he looks at you and says, no, whatever you do, don't, don't do this. Don't rob a bank. It's going to absolutely ruin your life. It's not worth it. Don't do it. And you look back at him and say, oh, we're doing it. We're, we're doing it. And you and your friend run out the door. But as you and your friend are running out the door, your other friend, your third friend, runs after you. He leaps and he grabs both of you by the shirt and he won't let go. But the shirt of your friend rips. And off he goes into the car. He drives to the bank. He robs the bank. In the process, he kills a guard. And now he's spending his life on death row. But for some reason, your shirt doesn't rip. Your friend holds your shirt and he holds you down, grabbing your shirt until you come to your senses and you see then what happened to the other guy. Now imagine the moment you're going to the jail to visit your bank robber friend. What would be your posture as you talk to him? What would be your attitude toward him? Would your attitude be something like this? You are the biggest idiot I've Who robs a bank? Why do people rob bank? What are you doing robbing a bank? I told you it was going to wreck your life. Would that be your posture? No, that wouldn't be your posture. Your, your posture would be, I should be in this jail. I don't know why I'm not on death row. The, the only thing keeping me back from, from death row is the mystery of God's grace. That, that alone. See, when we're seeing our sinfulness and God's faithfulness, this is how we begin to interact with people. When we see the depth of our sin and the amazing grace of God, it makes it impossible to be harsh and overly critical of others. Here's the second maybe grid to work it through. When we don't see our sin, forgiving others is impossible. We just cannot forgive other people when we don't see our sin. But when we see only our sin, forgiving ourselves is impossible. We just, we can't do that. But when we see both when we see both our sinfulness and God's faithfulness, forgiveness free, it flows freely in our life. Just consider the story in, in Matthew 18 if you want a reference. But, but if, if you right now, there's areas of your life where you just can't forgive that person. Their sin is just too big to forgive. You just cannot forgive them. The log jamming up everything else is your refusal to see the size of your sin and God's amazing grace to you. Here's another. When we don't see our sin, we're arrogant, pridefully arrogant. When we only see our sin, we are self-loathing and, and walking around in despair. And, and I worry about that for some of us. There are some of us who the Lord begins to really awaken us to our sinfulness 
I mean, at some point we sin in, in such a way where it even shocks us, right? God opens our eyes to these things. And in those moments, we are prone to despair and self-loathing because all we're doing is staring at our sin. But when we see both our sin and God's faithfulness, we walk in this humble confidence before the Lord. Humble because we see our sin confident because we know God's grace really is amazing, covering all of our sin. Here's a fourth one. When we don't see our sin, we have no sin to repent of. Uh, repentance is just sort of strangely absent in our life. Just ask yourself the question, when's the last time you've, you've brought honest sin before the, Lord, before the Lord repenting to him? When we don't see our sin, we have no sin to repent of. But on the other hand, when we only see our sin, our sin feels too bad to repent of. We, we shy away from God, just unwilling to bring the worst of ourself to a holy God. But when we see both our sin and God's faithfulness, we quickly and joyfully repent knowing that grace covers and cleanses all of our sin. We need to see our sin, yes, but we also need to see the amazing grace of God who no longer sees us in our sin, but in Christ, amen? Fifthly, when we don't see our sin, we never start to actually fight with sin. There's just no sin to actually oppose and fight in our life because we just don't even see it. But when we only see our sin, we lose heart and we stop fighting sin. It just feels like we're, we're fighting the mist. It's just everywhere and always there. And we just never can get, a, you know, get any movement with it. We just lose heart in the fight. But when we see both our sin and God's faithfulness, we lean into grace and endure in the fight against sin. We wake up every day committed to killing every sin that we see in our life. We wake up with, with the words of Peter ringing in our ears that, that Jesus, he bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That seeing God's, our sinfulness and God's faithfulness produces in us a want and willingness to fight against sin. And then lastly, we'll finish here. When we don't see our sin, grace seems below us. I mean, who needs grace when you're this good, right? That's what it feels like when, when we don't see our sin. But when we only see our sin, grace seems above us. I, I need grace, but grace just doesn't come down this far. But when we see both our sin and God's faithfulness, the grace of God electrifies us. The grace of God rips through our hard hearts, creating in us this exploding love, unrestrained, nothing held back. God, here is everything. It produces that deep love like we see in Luke 7. And this is what we want, isn't it? My hope today is that God would help us feel deep down in our bones what John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, said on his deathbed at the age of 82. He ended his life with these words. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things 
two things. This is what I remember. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That's what Jesus wants to unlock for us. That's what he wants to show us. He wants us to feel that deep down in our bones so that we can look up to him and sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to to sit before the Lord, to reflect before him, to ask the Lord to show you what it is that he would have for you. And And there are some in the room who today, you walked in and you know that you're far from God. You know there's never been a moment where you've pushed yourself across the line with Jesus. You made that decisive decision. And this is your day. My favorite few words in this text is in verse 50, where Jesus looks there and says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And God is inviting you today to have your sins forgiven and for you to walk out of this room in peace with God. So this is your day. God has providentially arranged a thousand circumstances to get you to that line where this is the day where you push yourself across, where you you come to God with the empty hands of faith saying to him, I am turning from my sin and I am offering you my whole life. God, here I am. I'm yours. Rescue me. Save me. If that's you, you can just pray that the best you know how there where you are.